0: Building software today is much faster than it was just a few years ago. The tools are higher level, and they abstract away tasks that would have required months of development in the past. Much of a developer's time used to be spent optimizing databases, load balancers, and queuing systems in order to be able to handle the load created by just thousands of users. Today, scalability is built into much of our infrastructure pieces by default. We've had several years of infrastructure with automatic scalability, and some of the more recent advances in developer tooling are about convenience and faster development time. These are tools that are built because we're no longer worrying so much about automatic scalability, since that's built into the tools. Developers are spending less and less time with the ambiguous idea of a server, and the problems of distributed systems that come out of those servers and more time interacting with well-defined APIs and data sources. And developers have a lot of trust in the consistency and the reliability of the distributed systems applications that they can focus more on the higher-level components of their application and their own unique application data model. A few examples of this higher-level data source system are AppSync from Amazon Web Services and Firebase from Google. These tools are like databases with very rich interactive functionality, and if you have done any high-level application prototyping recently or built any new apps yourself or built web apps, mobile apps, things that you're entirely building from scratch in the last couple of years and you haven't looked at Firebase or AppSync, these things might be very useful to you because they take so much of the difficulty out of application development, at least on the back end. So instead of having to create a server to listen to a database for changes and push notifications to your users in response to those changes, AppSync and Firebase are back-end systems that can be programmed to have this kind of functionality built in. And it can be kind of hard to explain what that means unless you've actually dealt with it or if you have tried to build a back-end service. But you really get a lot of value out of having these high-level, rich, database-like systems with server capacity, server functionality built in. Things like push notifications in response to a database update That used to be something that you would have to build an entire service to be listening to your database for, and now it's available in these super rich database-like products like AppSync or Firebase. And there are many other examples of high-level APIs, rich backends, developer productivity tools that lead to shorter development time. It's much faster to build applications today, consumer applications, business applications. And this gives you a lot of leverage as an engineer. And how should you respond to that leverage? It means that you can have faster expectations for getting a product to market. We can prototype really quickly for low amounts of money without sacrificing quality. We can also keep our teams smaller. We can perhaps raise less money we could spend more time focusing on design and user experience and business models, and less time focusing on keeping the application up and running. Today, I talked to Nader Dobit, who is a developer advocate at Amazon Web Services. And I always enjoy talking to Nader because he's entrepreneurial, but he is now working in Amazon. And there's a lot of conversation that we have in this episode about why would somebody as entrepreneurial as Nader... He did run a very successful business where he trained people how to use React Native. He has a podcast, React Native, I think it's, what is it, React Native Radio. He has written books. He's done a lot of stuff on his own, and yet he still decided to go and join Amazon. He just joined Amazon Web Services as a developer advocate, where he works on developer tooling, developer outreach, and... He explains why he did that, why he left working by himself to go work for Amazon. It makes complete sense to me. But we also talk about, more generally, how developer tooling is changing and how that change in tooling changes the potential for high output, fast iteration among developers. It's a strategic, philosophical discussion of how to build modern software, how to build businesses, and how to position yourself when there's so much change going on and there's so much tooling that you could take advantage of. We also talk a little bit about AR and some of the uh, potential applications there, other platforms that are nascent. And I really enjoy this conversation because it is the same kind of stuff that I'm always thinking about. What can I build? How fast can I build it? Is there a durable business opportunity in something? And we touch on all these things. Before we get on with the show, I want to mention that I am hiring for a new company that I'm starting. And I can't talk about the product quite yet. Just give me a a month or two. But I'm very excited about it. And I'm looking for an engineer in the Bay Area with significant experience in React.js and some sort of cloud. Whether that's Heroku or Firebase or Google Cloud or AWS, just a back-end cloud technology, and if you have that experience and you think you would work well with me, email me at jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com, or you can check out the job posting for more details at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs. Nader Dobbit, you are a developer advocate at AWS. Welcome back to Software Engineering Daily.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: So last time you were on, we talked about React Native. And today we're talking about something that's quite different. We might talk about React some, but there's a stark difference in in how to build a consumer-facing application today versus five to 10 years ago. And that's that's really the thing that, that you and I wanted to talk about on, on the podcast today. Basically, the idea is that I don't think people realize just how much faster software development has gotten. And I think you would probably agree with this. That's why I'm excited to talk to you. And so I want to start this conversation by just going through some examples of consumer applications that people think of as quite hard to build, but they're actually there's actually a lot of newer tools that make these applications much easier to build. So there's a set of applications I think even a boot camp graduate or a computer science university student could hack together in a few weekends with modern tools that if if we were talking about five years ago or 10 years ago, these things would be much, much harder to build. And and so to, to, to go through some examples, I want to start with Instagram because this is obviously an app that tons of people use. So if you were to build Instagram today, how would you contrast that with how, how you would build it five years ago?
1: Well, I guess to start with, you could kind of think about the team that would be involved in building it, or you could just say the person involved in building it. Um, if we're kind of talking about how you might throw something together today, and uh, like you said, a few weekends, at least get like a prototype or something like that. Um, before you'd have to have, you know, you would have to have a full team of uh, engineers. Probably you'd need a DevOps team or a DevOps person. Maybe you'd need someone that was. Un- understood service development really well. You need a front-end developer. You might even need uh, mobile developers for the different platforms that you're on, so iOS and Android. I guess maybe a system administrator. You're talking about, you know, a good five to 10 people, um, and that's kind of just... Uh, unless, of course, the, the person understood all of this stuff, which I guess is possible, but in in, re- in reality, it's it's kind of rare for someone to be specialized in all these different areas. But, um, you know, today... What we're going to be talking about is taking advantage of managed services and how you can kind of use an authentication provider like Auth0 or uh, AWS. We have our Cognito or whatever authentication provider you'd like to use. Um, You can use a managed database layer like um, either what we have is AWS AppSync or Firebase or something like that to kind of manage your data store. That kind of would gets you to the point where you could maybe leave off the server-side uh, developer and be the front-end developer working with these services. And then S3 to store your images or whatever uh, media that you're working with. I guess with Instagram, it would be images and videos. But the idea is, is taking advantage of managed services as a front-end developer, increasing your productivity, and moving further up the stack. And I think that's kind of a general thing that we're going to be seeing a lot more of in the coming years. And and we at AWS, at AWS Mobile, where I work, we're building a lot of stuff around it. But I think a lot of other cloud providers are looking into this space. And they're building a lot of tooling around it, because I think it's kind of going to be the future of where you're going to be uh, seeing a lot of software engineering in the future. So completely
0: agree. So, you know, five or 10 years ago, I would probably start with a Rails monolith, or perhaps a Node.js monolith. I would be running my own mongo database i would have to set up my own database node and today both the server aspect of software development and the database aspect have been rapidly the process of building them have been have, has been rapidly accelerated the process of maintaining them the the devops role that you might have needed to hire for in the past is is kind of abstracted into the position of the cloud provider. So I, I, I think that will be uh, one theme of the conversation today. So what are the specific tools that are making this faster? They're making the development process faster. So we're talking about like abstracting away our backend, like replacing the Rails monolith of the past or the Node monolith of the past, or replacing the self-hosted Mongo database of the past what are the tools that are replacing those tools?
1: So specifically on the database and what we're going to be seeing in in the future, we're going to see other other companies I think come out with stuff like this. But at AWS, we have an abstraction or a managed GraphQL service called AWS AppSync. And GraphQL, you've probably heard about it. Um, if you haven't, it's basically a different way of interacting with your resources than the traditional REST API. And uh, the general idea behind it is you have more control over your payload size. You you ask for what you need from the uh, from the back end from your database, and you get only that. So you end up with smaller payloads. Uh, you also uh, end up with uh, there just a different, completely different general idea of how you build out. It's a different philosophy of how you build out your APIs. But to go into what AppSync is, it's basically a managed GraphQL service. So with with AppSync, you can have a single GraphQL endpoint, and you can then work with pretty much any data source, Lambda function that you would like. So you end up having more of like a consistent API working with multiple different resources. So if you have, for instance, a DynamoDB table um, or DynamoDB database, uh, you also have maybe uh, Elasticsearch for searching. Maybe you have different Lambda functions working with microservices that have nothing to do with AWS. You can Basically, interact with all of these different resources using a cons- uh, consistent and single API endpoint. So, before you would have to have maybe just this is kind of more like a GraphQL thing. Say you would have a, a user's resource in your uh, REST API, and then you would have maybe users/slash, you know, another endpoint like uh, students maybe, or maybe you would have users, slash students, slash semester one, or whatever. You know, you would have all of these different endpoints kind of to drill down and get different types of information. Uh, With GraphQL, you would basically have your users as the main resource, and then you could then ask for the different data uh, from within those users. So you could, instead of having multiple endpoints, you're, you're basically working with a single endpoint and having different asks, I guess you'd say, from your database.
0: So GraphQL, the challenge that I always used to hear about GraphQL was that it's, you have to set up your own server. You have to, you have to set up a GraphQL server because it, GraphQL is this piece of middleware that translates all of your GraphQL specific requests into... Uh, to, into specific requests for your different backends. So like if you had an Elasticsearch backend, if you had a Node backend, if you had some other kind of backend, a Lambda function, it would it would be able to federate the requests to those different backends and that, that setting up that middleware layer of the GraphQL server is kind of annoying. Uh, how has that been simplified?
1: So I think you hit the nail on the head with that. And that's kind of where a new technology like GraphQL, that's just kind of what gonna, that what's going to happen at first. You know, there's going to be um, a lot of uh, innovation, a lot of changes, and no real consistency across any best practices or different tooling around it. I think we've seen a lot of uh, a, a lot of work done lately, especially with Apollo. They've released a new a new Apollo server that seems to work really well. But really, at the end of the day, building a GraphQL server on top of your uh, your existing um, resource. Maybe if you have an existing REST API, or if you just have an existing database, it is a lot of work. And and dealing with best practices around something this new, and then thinking about things like security and authentication and authorization, and just uh, c- and also just building it to be as fast as possible. It's not an easy task. And you have to think about not only learning uh, how GraphQL works, but then you're also implementing the typical things that you would in your in your database fetching uh, operations. So I think where something like AppSync or something like AppSync uh, in the future, I'm sure there's going to be other things out there. What you're gaining there is you're having a competent group of engineers that have spent a lot of time thinking out these best practices and building them for you. So instead of having to learn all this stuff and, and, and understand all of it, you basically can just use a manage, managed service where people have already done all this work and you can just uh, depend on your managed service and the decisions made there. And you can just build your front end and not really have to worry about building, maintaining and deploying your database, um, or de- I'm sorry, your server. So it kind of, it's it's just like if you're uh, subscribing to the idea of using something like alt zero for authorization, you don't want to build out your entire authorization scheme and worry about encryption and, and different things around security, you can depend on them to kind of have all of that worked out for you with, uh, you know, user storage and things like that. And you can then not build it, just pay them to kind of manage that for you. It's kind of the same idea, but on the side of a database. Is the
0: model here that I write my own front end, like I write a uh, a mobile front end in React Native or in iOS and Android or on the web, and then I communicate directly with my GraphQL
1: server and that handles my entire backend? That's the idea, yeah. <laughs> with AppSync right now, we have a few different first-class databases that are just already out-of-the-box configured to work really well without doing any extra work. So um, right now we have DynamoDB and Elasticsearch and we also have Lambda functions. So if you're not using DynamoDB, if you're not using Elasticsearch, if you have maybe some other resources within, within AWS like Aurora or RDS, you can simply just use the Lambda function to interact with those. But we're, we're working on possibly additional data, data stores that are first class that are going to be kind of part of what AppSync is. Also, if you already have an existing MongoDB somewhere out there database, you can just use a Lambda function to interact with it. So basically the idea would be to use uh, Lambda functions as the entry points into your other data sources and then have the GraphQL as the single source of, of your uh, API URL. Now, first of all, a minor
0: elephant that I want to get out of the room. So for people who are just hacking on apps, which as I know, I know is a lot of uh, a large percentage of the audience is like boot camp grads and college students and stuff. The idea of using managed services to hack together what you're building in terms of like the expense that you're going to spend on these things is almost always going to be super trivial. Like you might as well be, it's like, you know, five bucks a month or 20 bucks a month or something like that in exchange for, Saving you tons of time, so uh, I just want to say upfront, I'm 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 a big fan of the idea of using managed services to save time and to build faster. Now that said, I think there there's actually a, a quite a big array of of different managed services to choose from. So, for example. I have not used AppSync. It, it sounds perfectly reasonable to me. I've used Firebase. Firebase has been an amazing tool for me. So I've used it in two or three different applications, and it's just been so simple. And I don't even write much software anymore, so uh, the fact that I can work with Firebase quite easily makes me really optimistic. How do people choose? How do you recommend people choose between these different back-endless models of development, because I think Firebase is sort of the the Google uh, version of the back-endless development system, and AppSync is AWS's back-endless system.
1: Yeah, so it really depends on the type of application you're building and, and kind of like what you're comfortable with. So when you're working with some of the stuff that we're building, I can't really speak to anything else, but with AWS, and especially with AppSync, um, you're really using, uh, using the service because you know that you're going to be dealing with something that is scalable. You're going to be dealing with something that is secure. You're going to be dealing with something that has uh, already been battle tested and that's kind of production ready. You know, like the trade off and, in, and, in, and. In, you talked about just when you're prototyping stuff, how, how much easier it is and how much time you save when you use these managed services. And that's, that's entirely true. When you think about, you know, if you kind of value your time at a certain rate or if you charge, you know, hourly for your time to build stuff, you can kind of think of it that way. So if you, if you're, if you're like a $100 an hour developer and you want to, you know, deploy a back end, is it gonna um, cost you 10 or 15 hours to build this? That's gonna be a thousand fifteen hundred dollars, or do you want to spend, you know, five or ten bucks or whatever it's gonna cost to kind of just deploy it with uh with one of these managed services. But another another uh, benefit of using AppSync, I guess you would say, we've really, really focused on a couple of things that are really starting to become more and more prevalent in more mobile applications, especially with the prevalence of IoT and where where companies are trying to ship applications all around the world where their connectivity might not work as well as what we're used to. And those two things that we're really focused on at, when we were building AppSync and, and that we're continuing to focus on are offline functionality that works out of the box and real-time functionality. So when, when you're using an application, uh, when you go in the subway, so for instance, if, you've ha- if you have Twitter, you go in the subway, you lose connectivity, you're liking tweets and stuff like that, you might not be able to like get a, a, a new feed, but you can still interact with the application without it crashing. You come back online, you don't really get an error or anything. You, you kind of expect the app to continue to work. Now, in reality, building that type of application is really hard. You have to think of a lot of different scenarios, you have to handle a lot of different use cases. With with our AppSync GraphQL client and AppSync together, we have an offline functionality that's just built in out of the box and it works not only with javascript applications but we also have native clients so if you're an iOS developer an Android developer we have first class graphql clients that work that work in this fashion and then the second is uh, subscriptions which are the real time functionality and this isn't really an appsync specific thing it's more of a graphql thing but with uh, you mentioned firebase and they're really uh, they're will, really well known not only for their managed services as a managed database, but also for its real-time capabilities. So if you've worked with Angular Fire, it's really a nice experience. With GraphQL, you have this idea of subscriptions, which is the real-time functionality that you get with GraphQL. And the idea is you have a data set that you've pulled down and, and your application is rendering it to the screen. You subscribe then to changes within that data set. So if anything changes there, for instance, you have an array of tweets, for example, when someone pushes a new tweet to that data uh, data source, your subscription fires, and the new piece of data that, that you haven't already had comes down and gets pulled down into your application. And then you have that, that data in real time. And the same thing, I guess, with messaging applications, or even um, dashboards, or if you're building something like a editing application where you have like multiple people editing like a document, for example, this is where that real time and and also the offline stuff makes a huge difference
0: as we're talking about this stuff, I know there are people in the audience who are fresh boot camp grads or they're they just graduated with a computer science degree, and they have been building applications in. Java, or they've been building Node.js applications, or they've been learning Ruby on Rails in their boot camp. And now they're hearing, wait, we don't need those backends? Like, we're just supposed to actually completely change our paradigm and move into a world of completely managed services? That's how we should be hacking together our Greenfield apps? (laughs) So if you were to have a conversation with somebody like that, how would you tell them to 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 shift their mindset to to picking from this palette of managed services instead of the i think the the very tried and true and in fact a a model of application development that's that's going to take a lot of time for people to sort of overcome as the default which is like let's stand up a monolith and then let's start building a front end to talk to the monolith and et cetera like with managed services you really can throw a lot of that out the window but i think people are having trouble letting go of that idea.
1: So i don't feel like it's like a winner takes all thing to be completely honest. What i'm this is just my um view of of everything but the way i see it is we're going to see more and more front end developers be able to take on a lot of the work of back end developers and i feel like back end developers are going to be of course uh, still very much so in demand. I think they might move to, instead of just building like REST APIs where they're just throwing up endpoints, they might move on to more important tasks or more specialized tasks. You're seeing a lot more data science and stuff like that around the backend uh, with it with back-end developers or people that understand like these languages really well like Python and um, whatever C++ and stuff like that I don't really think it's gonna be oh all of a sudden you know these skills are worthless and instead I think we're gonna see these skill sets be just changed in a way where uh, front-end developers can to take on a lot of this extra work that was being done and then the backend developers are just going to be doing similar things, but maybe slightly different uh, things. And and you kind of see this and how we've seen cloud computing uh, change over the last few years with the move to more and more people using these uh, serverless services. But just serverless in general has taken off, but you still see a huge demand for DevOps and people that un- understand, you know, how to be a network engineer and, and and things like that and system administrator.
0: Completely agree. Um I was kind of playing a, a bit of an extreme uh, taking extreme uh, position there, but really the th- It's a good point there. Well, but th- so the thrust of what you're trying to say is if you're somebody who's a mobile developer or you're a you consider yourself a web front-end developer, you can leverage these tools to get a lot more mileage out of your position and 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 probably build apps uh, a lot faster than you would have had to in in uh, in the past you know especially if you would have in the past needed a back end developer to to help you with standing up some of those endpoints now you can focus a lot more on design you can focus a lot more on user experience you may not even
1: need a back end developer on your quote unquote This is entirely true. I mean, I just uh, published an application to my GitHub repo called Heard. And it's H-E-R-D, like, you know, I heard something. And it's kind of like me creating a clone of what Twitter would be. And when you think about Twitter, like, you see all these different Twitter apps uh, that are in in tutorials and stuff like that and documentation but um, a lot of times they don't really take into account things like following and followers and you wanna listen for new tweets. um, So when a tweet comes in, you want it to kind of show up in your screen. And then you have to think about authorization and fine-grained access control. And then of course, before that, you have to have authentication. So imagine building all of that from scratch, from the ground up as a new developer. It's just mind-bogglingly hard in a real world, you know, application. But I threw all this stuff together using uh, AWS Amplify, which is something I would like to talk about too in just a second. But the idea is you we have a bunch of different services that are geared towards this serverless or managed service model where front-end developers, once they've gotten to the point where they're competent with their front-end tooling, they can then move on and lo- uh, learn how to work in the ecosystem or in the consoles of these managed services, and then just be the glue that kind of interacts with those managed services. But yeah, ideally, if you are in like a startup scenario and you're just strapped for resources, this is the way to go, in my opinion. Um, and and you're going to hit a wall to the. You're going to probably get to a point where something isn't scaling well, or you need something that you just can't do. You're going to end up, of course, needing to bring on more and more people. But the fact that you can build something as a um, single developer that not only works but scales, because when you think about it, we can all build something that works. But the the you know, it might take a little extra time. But really, in reality, some of the issues that that happen or when you end up getting a bunch of users and you have to worry about that scalability. These managed services you know, especially are, are well-suited for that. So if you can spend the same amount of time or less time building something that doesn't scale versus building something that does scale, I think it's like a no-brainer. AWS Amplify, what is that? So Amplify is something, is a, is a CLI that we just released on July 16th. And it's a JavaScript SDK that was released uh, last year in 2017. So it's two different things now. Before we only had the JavaScript SDK, but now with the CLI, it's kind of more of a workflow, I guess you'd say, for front end to front end developers to quickly scaffold cloud enabled applications or manage serverless applications uh, from their command line. So if you've thought about, if, you, if you're if you familiar with Rails, you kind of understand how it came out of nowhere a little bit and a re- revolutionized really the way um, a lot of developers were able to become all of a sudden extremely efficient in building real-world um, web applications. Because from the command line, you could just spin up a lot of functionality just with a single command. You have the controllers and models, and, and you could do authorization and things like that. So Amplify, you install it as a uh, from the from your command line. Um, it's a globally installed npm package, and then you can scaffold different services. So you can just say AWS. Uh, I'm sorry, you can just say uh, Amplify init, which will create a new Amplify serverless application in your uh, the current folder that you're in. And then you can add things like authorization. You can add things like a GraphQL API. You can add analytics. You can add chatbots. You can add AR and VR stuff. You can add all all types of stuff just with these single commands. And you can just add one thing at a time and then um, say that you're you're just playing around with something and you don't like it anymore. You can just remove it. It's pretty easy. It's it, I think I think it's a really good entry point into working with these more sophisticated services for front-end developers because we're so used to working on the command line and um, it's kind of like something we're we're used to. So it's like you know you you create react app. You're uh, you're working with npm and stuff. Now you can just spin up a cloud enabled uh, or you know cloud enabled application and start adding services from the command line. So the command line um, is the uh, Amplify CLI, and then the JavaScript SDK is the Amplify uh, library, and and it's it's a library to kind of be the glue between the services in your front end application. We again do all types of stuff there. We do. Um, authorization and analytics and push notifications and a host of other things. I think we have like 11 or 12 different things. And then we even have special components for um Angular and for uh, React and React Native or we just have a vanilla JavaScript uh implementation.
0: AR example. I find really interesting cuz aug- if you if you let's say you wanted to build some combination augmented reality and streaming application something like I don't know. I'm having trouble thinking of of, a, of an application, but I'm sure we'll see things like this, where there is a high bandwidth video stream that is being run between your device and the cloud, and there's all kinds of buffering and latency issues and codecs and all these complicated things that you know you you don't want to think about as as a developer. And these are solved problems. They've been solved by by companies like. AWS and so, or, or like Mux, uh, you know, we, we that's a that's a sponsor of the show, but uh, also f- uh, friends of the show. They they work on uh, video streaming APIs. But uh, I know these are hard problems from talking to these people. But your your idea with the the AWS Amplify stuff is basically, if you wanted to include that in your app, it kind of makes sense for this to be provided by a managed service. It, in contrast to something like an npm package, because you know an npm package is not going to be able to manage or it's not configured auto configured to manage cloud infrastructure for you but here you're talking about something where it's a CLI that's it's it's from AWS so it's probably you know comes already connected to your your cloud uh, account and you know if you just wanted to declaratively say i want ar streaming capabilities in my app it makes sense to to do that through a cloud provider CLI am I kind of understanding the gist of amplify correctly
1: exactly exactly right on the uh, on the head actually because what ends up happening when you do initialize a new project you have you have like a copy of the config locally and then you also have the actual application service that's been spun up in your account and then you can go into the account and actually look you know in in the console if you'd like to to I don't know, play around with the settings or whatever from there. And then say that you make a change in your settings there, you can just pull down the new configuration in your application. Or if you make a change locally, you can just push up the new configuration. So as you make changes, you're kind of working from this flow of um, local to your actual managed service. And and you're able to interact with it from the command line, which is really powerful.
0: I think this stuff is so exciting the proliferation of managed services not to be a shill for the cloud industry or for the uh, you know for the for the type of companies that support software engineering daily but like as a developer uh, with as much objectivity as I can speak with this stuff is super exciting cuz so we've been talking about you know we started the conversation talking about kind of crud apps like a a, a photo sharing app or a social network like twitter or a dating website and those are interesting right like crowd apps are never going to become uninteresting but we're kind of you know we're at the frontier of some really exciting technologies things like machine learning like augmented reality like video streaming that building them with open source software is is it sounds great i mean it, it is great but there's a lot of challenges in the network and and things that you just you have you sh- it makes sense to have to pay for it makes sense to have a, a cloud provider help you with these things and and so I, I kind of want to get into a conversation around managed services and how to leverage them because I think this is this is an underexplored area so like people who are trying to think of entrepreneurial ideas and I know there's a lot of listeners who are like that I think you know there's a brainstorming process to be built around looking at managed services like you could it's, it's sort of like an artist you know an artist sits down in front of their palette or uh you know a, a, a pianist sits down in front of their piano and is like okay what can i make out of these colors or what can i make out of these piano keys with with a developer now you can look at all these managed services like you could look at algorithmia you could look at AppSync, you could look at Google's video intelligence API. You could look at ARKit. ARKit's not a managed service, but you know, something like that. So Amazon has a zillion of these different services. Do you have any ideas around the ideation process, the brainstorming process of a developer who is in this sort of new world where there's this proliferation of managed services that are extremely high leverage and have just not been explored very much?
1: Yes, I mean I have a lot of opinions about this. This is, I mean, it's one of the reasons I actually joined the team because I, before working with AWS, I was running a really, really um, successful consulting company, and um, I did not have a lack of business. That's not why I switched uh, switched gears a little bit. It was because I saw some of the stuff they're working on, and I really am always interested in like the next big thing. And if you think about cloud resources in general or, or working in a cloud environment in general, it basically allows you know, people to trade capital expense for variable expense. So instead of having to, when you come back to the general idea of, of cloud services, instead of having to build and manage your infrastructure by these service uh, servers and all of this extra you know, resources that you may need just in case, you're instead able to scale and then just pay for them as you go as your actual Um, Application grows, so if you move or if you take that general philosophy and and apply that maybe to actual software engineering, this is kind of where I see the uh, what this stuff is all about. So what that to me means: say I'm a front end developer, or or just say I'm an app developer, and I want to build something, and I don't know how to build this uh, server. Say um, I go get an estimate, and the person that says it's going to cost to get this service and this service and this service built it's going to be say a hundred thousand dollars what if instead i could just subscribe to a, a managed version of that service for a few pennies a day and then once i get enough enough users to where i actually am successful okay i have money coming in now my my build then does actually go up some but i can actually afford to pay it then so you're you're able to innovate a little bit easier as well because you 're able to kind of build these sophisticated things without having to ev- uh, invest a lot of money up front, but as like a new developer coming into the ecosystem or even an existing developer, you kind of have to think of efficiency and I think this is the ultimate form of efficiency because you 're able to take on a lot more work but not really work. I would say you 're able to accomplish a lot more work. Than the typical developer, if you kind of understand how to utilize these things and be efficient with them. So instead of a company, so in a few years, say for example, a company um, or someone wants to hire someone to build something, if you're able to come to the table and deliver five x, and and we always hear things like a ten x developer. This I don't. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying if you're able to deliver five x more capabilities and functionality than your competition they're going to hire you and i believe in the future we're going to see developers getting paid a lot more that can understand this entire idea and kind of navigate their way through these different uh, providers that that offer these different services not just aws but just in general
0: i completely agree i think it's it's super exciting for me okay so things like push notifications sms stuff building chat applications CRUD apps, scaling a database, scaling serverless functions. I think of these as kind of like solved problems. Not fully solved, but there's a lot of really good solutions for these things. So if you're if you're struggling to build like a CRUD app or struggling to to figure out how to deploy a database, there's a lot of solutions for for these things. And you know, we talked about that at the beginning with AppSync. That's I think of that as kind of a frontier solution to solving your crud solving your your api management issue not to say these these are easy problems solved they're just there's best practices there's well-defined tooling around it and the tooling will always get better but i wanted to ask you about the things that are still a little bit too difficult or the things that have recently gotten easy so i think of something that recently got easier perhaps augmented reality, perhaps image recognition or, or uh, audio transcription. These are things that have recently gotten extremely easy because they've been turned into APIs. There are things that are still a little bit difficult. I, I think machine learning is one example there where, you know, yes, there are frameworks for it. There are cloud services for it, like SageMaker from Amazon. I've heard really good things about that. But Algorithmia has something around uh, machine learning deployments. Aside from machine learning, what are the things that are still a little bit too difficult or the things that have recently gotten easy that are exciting to you?
1: The frontier. So for sure, for sure, we're seeing I mean, when I say we're like I'm seeing a lot of a lot of demand for machine learning engineers, we're seeing that it's not easy to build real-world machine learning algorithms that actually work with uh, data sets, because there's just a lot to, to learn there. And there's also such a high demand that, you know, any competent engineer that understands machine learning or data science, to a degree can make a lot of money, especially compared to just a typical developer. So to me, like, I see that machine learning is, I'm seeing like glimpses of what could be a solved version of machine learning, and that's in managed services again, where you can have a API that you can interact with to do certain things. But in reality, say that you have a specialized problem that needs to be solved, you have to actually hire someone that understands how to write this uh, code and also how to work with the proper data sets and do everything. And I think I, I don't, I, I feel like that's not going to be a solved problem. I think we're going to see more and more frameworks and and libraries that are built to make the make it easier i don't think that that entire idea can be ever abstracted away what we are seeing that's become super like duper easy are things like author, authorization like it's almost like crazy now, in my opinion, um, as a small company to medium uh, small company, I guess you'd say, like especially to build your own um, authentication layer when you have to really, when you really are worried about security, when you can just um, work with one of these managed services. That's, or of course, uh, that's just my opinion, of course, but yeah, um, that's that's really easy now. Working with GraphQL. You know over the last few years has gotten much easier, and now with AppSync, I feel like that's I'm not gonna say it's a solved problem, but um, you don't have to build your own GraphQL API anymore, you can just spin one up and just hit, hit an endpoint, and it works. That's pretty cool, yeah. I don't know, I mean, there's probably dozens of examples out there, but those are just the two that are off the top of my, my mind because I've felt the pain of actually building these things, and now that I can just like you know, I, I guess the first time I ever used Auth0, that was. When I was really like, wow, this is an amazing service. Um, after building all this stuff myself and then using that, like you know, that was my first look glimpse into these types of services. And now with uh, I work with Cognito, which to me is just awesome as well. I'm I'm really sold on that stuff. So we got to talk some about
0: the front end because if we're talking about the whole picture of how application development is changing, we we have to touch on the front end. And you're an expert in this area. You. Were running your own business with React Native training, and as you said, you did not have any shortage of business. You moved on to Amazon because it sounds like you wanted, you were curious about the rest of of the stack. I mean, you're going to come out of this <laughs> uh, Amazon experience, or 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 maybe you'll stay there for decades. Who knows? But in any case, I'm sure you're going to be brimming with ideas very shortly because you know how fast people can build really impressive front end applications at this point, and now you're going to get. Uh, a masterclass in in what's available to uh, to rapidly develop at the at the back end, but since we've talked about the back end at this point, we've talked about these APIs, we've talked about build building your your back endless back end. I got to ask you about the front end. So there's a couple of interesting developments. So first of all, you were working on React Native training, and that was I I, I believe was you were helping businesses uh, figure out their their internal strategies, their internal processes around developing React Native uh, applications, which is a cross-platform framework for developing mobile applications. So you write, write what is it, write once, write, any, write anywhere or something? Uh, what, what was,
1: what? Yeah, it's like uh, learn once, write learn anywhere. Learn
0: once, write anywhere, right. So basically the idea is you get to, to write application of mobile applications faster. So a couple interesting data points. So recently, we've done a couple shows about Flutter, which is uh, Google's spin on the cross platform mobile application development. And there was also this Airbnb post about how Airbnb had built a ton of code uh, around React Native. And then they announced, you know, this is not working out for us. We're moving off of React Native uh, slowly, but steadily. So I want to throw those two ideas at you and, and I want to get your perspective, especially because now you don't have really have a dog in the fight. Where is cross-platform mobile development today? And, and what are your thoughts on on how it looks in the next two to five years?
1: Yeah, so like, me personally, I'm all about some efficiency, like I am like, when I see something that can increase efficiency, I'm all over it. And I feel like that was the reason that I got into React Native development in in the first place. Not only was it really cool to build a mobile app, with a you know with javascript and then be able to go then build a website with javascript but now we're able to build like vr and ar and desktop apps and and apple watch apps and whatever you know you can build like a dozen different targets with react native and i think that's where react really shines and react native really shines and i still am actually super bullish on react native but definitely um flutter um, has been a new newcomer in the mix actually i gave a talk about the future of cross-platform application development exactly a year ago. And uh, it was at React Native EU. And part of my talk was about Flutter. And I feel like a lot of the predictions that I and and a lot of the thoughts that I had behind Flutter I've seen actually continue and maybe even become more of a reality faster than I expected. So to me, like, right now, of course, in that space, there are two main, of course, competitors. And and, in my opinion, that's React Native and Flutter. And I think that with, uh, I'll, I'll talk about React Native first. React Native's been around now for over three years, I think. It was around 2015, March, I believe it was uh, released. So it's been around for over three years. And that's a short amount of time, but it's also a long amount of time compared to Flutter. What we've seen is a lot of companies have adopted React Native at an early stage. I think that was Airbnb's situation. And they've had time to actually you know, work with it, and, and it found out that it's not right for them. And it, and if you actually read through the blog post, they had a lot of good points there. And, re, and, and if you've kept up with the React Native ecosystem and the repo lately, you've noticed that there hasn't been a lot of a lot of activity within the Facebook actual organization into the project. And they released a blog post recently kind of talking about why that was. And that's because Facebook they're actually did? addressing a lot of the issues.
0: You, you said Facebook released a blog post recently talking about that?
1: Yes, yes. Facebook released. Uh, it's it's uh, it's on the Facebook blog. I can link. I can give you a link to it. Maybe we can yeah, share yeah, it with the people sure, listening. Sure, sure. Yeah, and and they went over like three main points in the blog post. They're they're reengineering how React Native is built, actually, how it works, and they've spent some time over the last months actually doing that. And a lot of the issues that Airbnb had were addressed in that blog post. Oh. And I think that once, yeah, I think that once React Native uh, releases this new version, we're going to see <laughs> um, a lot of the pain points addressed there. But I will say this about React Native versus Flutter. I think in the couple of years. We're going to see an equal fight between the two. I wouldn't say fight, but we're going to see... I I think both of them are going to be equally viable because I think that Flutter has a lot of uh, advantages that React Native doesn't have, and those are a lot, have a lot to do with how the project is actually run. I love, yeah, I mean, I love Facebook's uh, team and React Native. I know a lot of those guys personally, they're like amazing, but I feel like Google has taken in Flutter and put it as like a first-class citizen, and they're listening to everything that people are saying, and they're very responsive. They're, um, they have pristine documentation and examples um, and they have a few things built in that React Native doesn't really support that they kind of let the community support, like navigation, UI libraries and stuff like that, that that Flutter actually maintains. And, and I feel like that's a huge plus. So like for me, if I was going to pick up Um, cross-platform development today, I would actually look at both and see uh, what I like better. If you want to build web applications and you want to build VR and AR, you might want to look at React Native. But if you're strictly worried about deploying to iOS and Android, I might choose Flutter at this point. That's just because I really like the way that the project's handled and I feel like the people running it are not only as competent as the Facebook people, but they're um, more engaged and and actually uh, being... I don't know they're being more proactive about stuff.
0: Well, so I interviewed Eric who is the engineering manager on Flutter and I mean he was talking about so first of all like Flutter directly interfaces with the GP uh, I guess the the uh, was it the GP but anyway, it interfaces with the operating system in the same way that OpenGL does. So it's like it it's like you're you're almost like you're you're building a a game like Games are cross-platform applications that work really well on both iOS and Android, and that's because games are often written, I guess, in OpenGL or or in Unity or something, like uh, these game engines that, that compile in a way that is very close to the hardware, and so it runs on both iOS and Android. And it runs performantly, but the thing is it doesn't maintain the UI elements. And so that that you know, they they talked about re-engineering these UI developments in the context of this game engine-like runtime API. And I'm sure Eric can explain it better than I can. But he talked about, I believe they would record the uh, the speed at which native UI components uh, would perform. They would literally use a high definition camera to re- record the physics, and then they would they would use the math from those recordings to recreate those in the context uh, of Flutter. And anyway, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna butcher this story anymore. <laughs> but really, the the precision and the the approach, the the highly disciplined approach to Flutter, that really impressed me.
1: Holy yeah, holy moly! That's interesting. That's super interesting. I'm gonna have to actually listen to that episode.
0: Yeah, and and I mean. In terms of the future stuff, like, have you seen the Fuchsia stuff, or the, the, I guess it's it's a rumor mill, but the Fuchsia operating system coming out of Google?
1: I have, I have. I don't know a lot about it. Nobody does. Uh, I've read does. a few different threads. <laughs> yeah. Nobody does, but it, but it's, it's interesting to think about,
0: like, oh, you know, here we got a new operating system, and here's a UI layer that runs anywhere, and it would be pretty cool to have, like, a completely fresh start, completely new UIs, completely new uh, operating system, and Anyway, I'm, I'm getting us off topic. Anyway, c- coming back to, to application development today. So we've got nice cross-platform tools. Whether you're talking about Flutter or React Native, I mean, we can pick Democrat or Republican. In any case, the world is improving. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. th- things are getting quite easy on the front end. Things are getting quite plentiful on the back end. What does this change about entrepreneurship, about product development?
1: Well, just like how the cloud in general just uh, enabled more innovation, more experimentation, and just more activity, I think we're going to see just more and more of that. We're going to see an acceleration of that. Because again, if you as a single developer can take your skill set and extend it to do all these other things, like why not? And um, once you have all these people that have, taken their existing skill set and and added all of these new things that they can do, they're going to be building more and more stuff. And I think it's going to, you know, you're going to see a lot of positive things happen as far as new new ideas being fleshed out where people could before have an idea and not actually be able to do anything with it. They may be able to actually get a prototype out now and then maybe people will see it and they'll get funding. You know, it's just more more experimentation, more innovation, and more opportunity to try things out that may or may not work because you have the ability now. And I think if you're listening and you're a front-end developer and you think of yourself of a front-end developer and you're like, oh, should I learn, like what should I learn next? I mean, seriously consider the idea of of what maybe could be called a serverless developer or serverless plus plus developer. I don't really have a name for it, but a developer that can competently Work with all of these managed services to extend your capabilities to do all these other things, and I think Amplify is a good place to start. But, the, but I wouldn't limit it to that. Like, look around, see what's out there, and and just think about this this paradigm. Because, and, and really notice um, as things progress in the future, when you see these startups that are coming out with these microservices, we're we're going to see a lot. I think we're going to see a lot more of, uh, of companies that are um, building services that will work. In this this same way that we're talking about,
0: so you were running your own business with React Native training before this, and now you're at Amazon. Existentially, how do the two compare? So I you know I briefly worked at Amazon. That is that is a seriously entrepreneurial organization, and and in some in some sense you you get to be more entrepreneurial than at, at Amazon than you would running your own thing because you have access to these crazy resources. So how does the your lifestyle uh, as an entrepreneur compare between running React Native and now working at Amazon?
1: So this is my first time uh, working at a large uh, corporation company like this. So it's been definitely uh, a a major change than just completely working on your own. But uh, my, my role there is actually a developer advocate. A developer advocate does a few things. First of all, we write blog posts explaining how to use a lot of the different tools that we have. We speak at conferences uh, talking about some of the new tooling that we have coming out and new services and stuff like that. Up appear on podcasts, of course, <laughs> like the one we're listening to. But but really the the main bread and butter like of my position is actually interacting with developers and talking to them and kind of understanding the different issues that they're having and what they like or what they don't like about just anything and, and bringing that information back to the engineers and the project and product managers and kind of fleshing out ways to improve things really in, in the developer ecosystem. And I work with AWS mobile, which is the mobile team. So we we focus uh, somewhat, but not 100% on mobile. Uh, we're also uh, focused on IoT and serverless stuff. But but I would say like changing like from my day to day, like uh, actually not a whole lot, believe it or not. Um, I used to travel three weeks to two to three weeks out of the month. I work Um, remotely now. So I do still travel, but not as much. So I travel maybe two weeks out of the month. And there aren't a lot of uh, remote employees uh, with AWS. But as a developer advocate, I'm actually on the road a lot anyway. So it doesn't matter as much. And I'm doing a lot of uh, videos and and recordings and stuff. So it's good for me to kind of have my own space. I think that's why it worked out for me. Like, I am like as a as an individual just all like a really like a uh, hard working person or us I, I work a lot of hours I guess you'd say. I would say it hasn't been a lot of change. Um I don't I don't feel like I have a lot of oversight as far as like oh you have to do this uh, at, at my current position. It's more like as long as we're you know out there um bringing back good um information from our customers and trying to improve our the customer experience. And as long as you know I'm doing stuff, they they're cool with it. So it seems to be a somewhat more laid back than I was expecting. Culture because I haven't heard a lot of that from Amazon. I always hear um, that it might be you know a lot of a lot of work and stuff like that and there, it is a lot of work but i feel like it's not uh it's a much better experience than i uh, expected well
0: and that's so true like so i i used to work at amazon uh, very br- briefly you know just 8 months and some people have gotten the perception from me saying that that i didn't like working at Amazon. And and that I just want to put it out there that that was not at all the case. Like I loved Amazon and the organization really shaped how I think about the world and how I think about entrepreneurship. I, I think if you're an entrepreneur, it's it's possible that there if, if you don't know what you're doing and you don't have like a reputation or anything, you can't start your own business. It's quite possible that there is literally no better place to go because it's like basic training for entrepreneurship and the, like the reality is is that the real world is is kind of difficult like it's, it's it's not straightforward how to build your own business like it takes a lot of work but once you kind of figure it out you're like oh okay you just you kind of work hard and you and you you know rinse and repeat and you know you've got to work long hours and that's just the the nature of reality so it doesn't surprise me that coming from the real world where you built your own business and you realized how much you had to do on your own and then you went to Amazon. You're like, oh, this actually is not at all like that New York Times article that I read. Anyway, not to put words in your mouth, but um, you know, <laughs> uh, I, I I just I, I really like Amazon, and it was I didn't feel like I was you know strained as an individual. Like I know that the, there's a public perception that it does strain you.
1: Yes, totally. Um, well, I'm curious, like, what team were you working with there? I was
0: on a team. I think it was Amazon Global, and so so I worked on like logistics software.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, like you, you mentioned, people don't realize how much of an entrepreneurial spirit there is within the company. I mean, this is at AWS, of course. I haven't worked in the Amazon, uh, like the rest of Amazon, so I can't really speak to that. But we have a lot of free reign to kind of innovate and do new things. And, and as long as um, uh, the idea is like somewhat of a good idea, like we have... Full like you know range of, to pursue pursue new things, and that's how a lot of uh, services in AWS and a lot of ideas in Amazon have actually come about. People just thinking of um, something interesting and be like, "Hey, like let's try this out." I mean, um, you would be you'd be surprised. These aren't like these aren't like ideas that come out of some like. Thought leader at the top of the company. A lot of times, these are just engineers that'll throw together an, a white paper with an idea, and, and it'll be pursued. and And now you see uh, millions of people using it. And I think okay. working in AWS and seeing how all the different services are connected is really beneficial. Like you said, if you're if you're looking to be in the future, like an entrepreneur, seeing how things kind of work together and how to work with these cloud services, it's a de- it's definitely a good place to be. I'm I'm really enjoying it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> And that culture, man, that culture is something else.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely, it fits me perfectly. So <laughs> I like it a lot. Okay, well, Nader, this has been great. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, man. Uh, thanks, Jeff, for having me back on. I really enjoyed it. Um, I hope that a lot of people got a lot out of this. And if anyone ever wants to talk about this stuff, I'm readily available on Twitter. My Twitter handle is dabit3, D-A-B-I-T, and the number three GitHub and Medium are the same handle if you ever want to read any of my stuff or check out my code. Wow.